Wow, we're going to sing that one again sometime. Not tonight, though. <laughs> Learn that good old, good old hymn. We are in Isaiah chapter 31. I'd encourage you to turn there, Isaiah 31 tonight, as we continue our study. And um, if you did not receive a study sheet, we've got plenty. Did anybody not receive a study sheet? All right. Um, uh, James, would you mind grabbing a couple study sheets and then just pass them out to whoever's got their hands up? I grab a bulletin there, a prayer request thing there as well. Thank you, James. Okay, if you didn't get one, put your hand up, and we'll get one to you. Well, we've been off for a couple of weeks, hard to believe. We had a wonderful, wonderful time this afternoon. We had close to 30 this afternoon in our afternoon class, and of course, uh, Nancy's cookies are what bring folks to that, so that's always fun. But I'm glad to see you here tonight, and this afternoon we kind of got things going again. Just a reminder, Isaiah is an amazing book, and we've had quite a journey. But it's, it's a challenge of a book, it's a challenge to teach it, because I, I feel like I, I do not do it, I never, I never will do it justice. But I feel like I'm not doing it justice going this way, and we're taking it really verse by verse, and because of that, uh, sometimes it's, it's easy to forget the big picture. But uh, the big picture is God is incredibly unhappy with the condition of his children. And they are idolatrous. They are drunkards. They are living in all sorts of perversity. And uh, this is Judah. This is, uh, th these are the people who were closer to God and following him much longer. Israel, the northern kingdom, is pretty much by this time a lost cause. And God has turned them over to judgment. But God is still reaching out, giving opportunities, merciful opportunities, for Judah to turn back. And so what Isaiah begins with is a look to judgment. God says, I want you to tell my people that I am going to bring judgment. And that judgment is going to be in the form of the Assyrian army. And the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to destroy you. They're going to bring much, uh, much harm to you if you do not repent. And so we see that, as I shared this other aspect of it, for me, one of the blessings that I've learned in my study of Isaiah, in the midst of all this, this uh, dire judgment, and it gets very bleak, as God describes how horrible the judgment's going to be, he, does, he goes through several chapters of that, and then out of the blue, he says, now look up. He says, now look up. And he shows them an image of their future of the future millennium, the reign of Christ. And so he goes from this horrible black image, this black picture of, of everything so horrible. He says, I want you to see what I have for you in the future. Or he is revealing his merciful heart to them once again, saying, if you'll just come back to me, I have a blessed future to offer you. He said, look what you are giving up by going your own way, by being idolatrous. And you want to follow your gods, well... But look what you're missing in that, and I have this to offer you, God revealing his merciful side. So let's jump into Isaiah 31. If you're taking notes, Roman number one is Judah's failure to trust in their God. And really, that's at the crux of the matter. God was all-powerful. He is all-powerful, and he was to them. And he had chosen them to be his people. He said, I will be your God if you will allow me to be your God. If I will be your only God, I will be your God. 
but they refused to trust in him. Letter A, Judah was warned not to place their trust in Egypt for help. It's an interesting story. As you notice, the, the children of Israel, oftentimes, their default, their default position when pressure comes is to run to Egypt. When, when there's famine in the land, what do they do? They run to Egypt. When there's problems that occur, they run to Egypt. And here God is saying, I'm warning you, don't do that. Isaiah 31, 1. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Though heading down to Egypt seemed to supply their immediate needs, it was a destruction to them spiritually because they were refusing to trust in their God. Here, God reminded Judah that he wanted to be their strength and provider. And by running to seek the help of the Egyptians in the face of the Assyrians, Judah revealed where they really trusted, and that was not in God. In Jeremiah 17, verse 5, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Very familiar verse in Psalm 20 and verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Letter B. God would be against Judah and Egypt in their effort to seek Egypt's military help. I don't know if you noticed it, but here I said that God would be against Judah and Egypt in their effort to seek Egypt's military help. Let me read for you verse 2. Yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. So God's going to bring judgment or arise against the house of the evildoers. Now that's Judah. That's his own people. We've been told they're the ones doing the evil. They're the idolatrous ones. They're the ones that are, that are drunkards. They're the evildoers. And also, he's going to arise against the help of them that work iniquity. So the folks that help them out, well, they're going to Egypt for help. So God is going to bring judgment against Judah, the evildoers, and against Egypt if they help them. Letter C, Egypt and Judah would face defeat by God. Verse 3, now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is holpen or helped shall fall down, and they all shall fail together. Here Judah is reminded that by running to Egypt, they were overlooking a much more powerful source of power, and that was God himself. He was both willing and able to protect them and fight for them. Any enemy is no match for God. <laughs> Let me repeat that. Any enemy is no match for God. Now, is it possible that you are facing an enemy of sorts today? Now, perhaps that enemy is an inner enemy, some kind of a temptation that keeps eating at you and that you're falling at. Well, that's an enemy. Well, the Bible says that there is no enemy that's a match for God. He's all-powerful. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Which means if there is no enemy that is a match for God. Perhaps there are financial pressures that is an enemy right now for you. 
or health issues that you're looking at as an enemy. Well, there is no enemy. There is no enemy that's any kind of a match for God. <laughs> I've heard it said, and perhaps you have too, that, that there is this constant battle between good and evil, between God and the devil. And then they're just fighting back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Wonder who's going to win, God or the devil? <laughs> well, you know, when you stop and think about it, that's a ridiculous image. Because, first of all, the devil is a created, finite being. And God, who is infinite, God, who is all-powerful, created that being. And at any time could squash him like a bug. There is no equal battle here. God, in his incredible foreknowledge and his knowledge, has allowed the devil the freedom because of man's hearts. Man are the one that put the devil as the prince of the power of the air. We elected him. We gave him right to rule our lives by refusing to submit to God. As such, as such, God in his incredible patience and mercy is calling out to us. So what we see here is an amazing picture of the mercy of a loving God. Roman number two, God's plan for Assyria in judging Judah. God's going to reveal now through Isaiah his plan. Letter A, God would destroy the Assyrian army as he would protect Judah. Verse 4, For thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion, and for the hill thereof. Here's the picture. Judah has gotten the word that Assyria is on the march toward them. They're scared. And so what do they do? Call out to God for help? No. They run to Egypt for help. And God says here, listen, if you would just call out to me, if you would just turn to me and allow me to be your source of strength, I will fight for you and I will win the battle for you. That's what he says here in this passage. The imagery here, a lion and or a young lion standing over its prey, guarding it from would-be robbers. These lions represent God protecting his people. When a multitude of shepherds or Assyria rises up against Judah, don't be afraid. Because God is going to fight for Judah and Jerusalem. Assyria's sad and overwhelming defeat is what's being alluded to in this passage, and we've talked about it. Remember how Assyria marched, again, they marched through Israel, and they marched up to the door of Jerusalem, and they encamped around Jerusalem. Now, they never came inside, but they camped, encamped around Jerusalem, cutting off all food supplies. As they're camped there, there's no way that Jerusalem inside the city can get food. They're beginning to starve, but they're on the outside. What God did here is God won this incredible battle. And not a warrior from Jerusalem picked up a weapon. God killed 185,000 of those Assyrians. They're all dead. So as they came out and opened the door, they see all these Assyrians dead. 185,000, incredible. Hosea 11.10, They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. Letter B. 
I like this. God can see all, so he can preserve his people from enemies. And here's the verse. Verse 5. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. And passing over, he will preserve it. <laughs> so the picture is describing like a bird. Now I picture an eagle. I had the privilege here last week of seeing an eagle hovering over as I was driving to, to, to church here. It was just, just hovering. And I love it when an eagle just, just does, basically doesn't move. He's just there. And he's riding the wind current effortlessly. Just powerful picture. I just love that. He's got his beak looking down. He's just looking for something to kill. He just, he just can't wait to, to find some food down there. But he's just at total peace there. He can see very well from his perspective. Ah, like a bird. God, from his perspective, like a bird, can see all. He can see when the enemy advances. He can see where Judah is. He can see everything from his perspective. And so God is saying, listen, I can see all, folks. Egypt can't see what I see. Egypt is not all-powerful like I am. I've got perfect perspective. You can trust me. Psalm 37, 40, And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. Why? Because they trust in Him. Because they trust in Him. Letter C. Judah was called to repent from their revolt. It's interesting the wording that God uses here. Remember, Judah is going to Egypt for help and not God. Notice what God calls it in verse number 6. Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. God called out Judah to repent from their wicked plans and come back seeking the help of their God. He saw their choosing Egypt over him as a revolt against him. They were rebelling against him. And now they're revolting before God. In Jeremiah 5, 23 and 24, But this people hath a revolting and a rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, that giveth rain, both the former and the latter, in his season. He reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Letter D. Judah's deliverance will reveal their foolishness in trusting idols. Their going to Egypt revealed their heart's problem. They had been going to Egypt all along symbolically in following other idols and not God. As they worshipped these false gods, they were putting their trust in them and not God. So their running to Egypt for help was just revealing their idolatrous heart. Verse number 7, For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. Now notice, in that day, the idolatrous people are going to throw away their idols. Finally, they're going to throw them away. Any conjectures as to what's going to lead them to throwing them away? Why would they cast them away? Any ideas? 
somebody this afternoon had the right answer. That's exactly right. These things are worthless. They're worthless. Assyria is still winning. I've been praying to you. And we're losing. You're worthless. And they throw them away. Exactly right. Finally, in the day of God's deliverance from Assyria, Judah would throw away their idols, recognizing the futility of trusting in lifeless metal objects. Their cleansing from idols, sadly, would not last, however. But it would give them at least a brief time of devotion expressly to God. Letter E. God would soon destroy the Assyrian army by his mighty power. Verse 8. Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited. God was going to destroy the Assyrian army, but not with the weapons of man. I already said it. Those 185,000 were killed. But not one of the men of Judah in Jerusalem lifted a finger against them. It wasn't them. Their destruction would be overwhelming, and the few remaining would limp back to their home, Nineveh, in shame. In 2 Kings 19.35, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. <laughs> Who killed them? The angel of the Lord killed them. Letter F. Assyria was so soundly defeated, they shook at the waving of a flag. Let me read it for you. 39-9, or 31-9. And he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, or flag, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and his furnace in Jerusalem. They will be so defeated, they'll be so paralyzed and in fear over this devastation of the loss of these 185,000 that at the sign or sound of a waving flag they'll be paralyzed in fear. You ever been out in the wind and you hear a flag snap? You, know, you hear that snap of the flag? I think what it's referring to is here's this flag, this ensign, this flag of Judah and the wind hits it and it snaps and the few remaining from this devastation go running scared to death just because of that flag snapping. Next chapter, chapter 32. Once again, God's going to reveal his mercy because we're going to start looking into the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, a look ahead. So Roman number one is a look to the millennial reign of Christ. And letter A is Christ will rule over all in the millennium. Verse 1, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment, or justice. Isaiah looks to the reign of the king of kings, ruling over all kings. His reign will be in righteousness. He will preside over all those he places in authority to serve with him. Examples of these princes might be the apostles and faithful believers, we who are saved, now ruling and reigning with him during that time. 
Now you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is here we have a king actually ruling in righteousness. Now just think for a moment. Is there a kingdom on this world right now where a king reigns consistently in righteousness? And I have to say no. No. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day where the king will rule in righteousness, and that's the Lord Jesus. And his princes, all those serving with him, will rule in judgment or in justice. In Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. In Revelation 2 and verse 26, and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. So notice, by obeying Christ now and overcoming with him now, will be given power over the nations then, then during, the, during, his, during his reign. In chapter 3, in verse 21, Revelation, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my father in his throne. So there will be those giving power over nations, and there will be those ruling in authority with Christ during that time. Letter B, Jesus will rule as the Son of Man. Critical that you catch that title, Son of Man. Verse number 2, And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Jesus, as the Son of Man, emphasizing His manness. He was all God and all man. Right now, it's emphasizing the fact that He's ma a man. He will become, in that day, a place of refuge from all the storms of life that had been thrown against his people. As he came back in his resurrected body, he was still all man, all God, and all man, the God-man. He will provide refreshment to weary souls and shade from the burning heat of the sun. You see, Jesus suffered as a man. He will reign one day as a man as well, ruling over all as the glorified Son of Man. Matthew 26, 64 Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see, notice, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Letter C. The veil of spiritual darkness will be lifted. Verse 3. And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim. And the ears of them that hear shall hearken. Oh, the number of times we've talked about this this, this spiritual veil that God placed over uh, Israel so that they could not see, they could not hear nationally because they had rejected him so long and because they had refused to give up their idols and because they had turned their backs on God and shook their fists and said, you will not rule over us, finally, finally God said, okay, all right, you've proven to me that you do not want me to lead you. Therefore, I'm going to put a veil over you nationally so you cannot see spiritually. You cannot hear when I call. It'll be impossible nationally. As a nation, you will not come back to me, he said, because of the veil. But individually, 
And we see this throughout the scriptures. We see even with the veil, individuals had the ability to still call upon Christ and get right with him. But there's coming a day where that veil will be lifted. And here it's talked about it being lifted. Jesus, uh, let's see, um, in the Lord's reign, the veil of spiritual darkness that had been placed over them, over God's people for failing to follow him, will finally be fully lifted, allowing them to clearly see who Jesus is. You say, hallelujah, finally, God's people will have the ability to see clearly, to hear the word of God clearly. It'll be wonderful for them, right? Well, not exactly. Because the spiritual veil will be lifted, they for the first time will understand what they did to the Messiah. The enormity and guilt that nationally Israel will face will be overwhelming when they come to grips with the fact that they're the ones that nailed God's Son to the cross. Letter D, the message of Jesus Christ ruling as king will be spread by all in that day. Verse 4, the heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers shall be ready to speak plainly. <laughs> Many through the years have rashly or carelessly handled spiritual matters. In that day, it will consider them soberly understanding the things of God and His Son. They won't treat them casually. They won't treat them haphazardly. They won't build an entire doctrine over one little tiny word. They'll build on the whole counsel of God's Word in that day. Those who could not speak well, either by mumbling or unable to formulate rational thought, will then speak clearly and plainly about Christ and His work. If you go to, okay, I'm going to retract that statement. A few years ago, because I've not been around groups of teenagers outside of church recently, but if you were to go to a group of typical teens outside of the church, outside of this church in particular, and, and just pick on any particular teen and carry on a, try to carry on a conversation with them, you'd be very fortunate if you got more than three or four words out of them. They don't, they don't speak. Their sentences are maybe one or two mumbled words, and that was it. But now, in this day, in this day, in the day of the Lord, those that could not or would not speak will speak freely. What will their words be? Their words will be in praise to God. Letter E. A person's true character will be revealed in the day of the Lord. Verse 5. The vile person shall be no more called liberal, <laughs> nor the churl said to be bountiful. <laughs> we need a dictionary right now, so let's walk through it. In the day of the Lord, there will be a correcting of men's assessment of one another. How good are we at assessing others today in the world? Are people really good about assessing others? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not, and the world's not. We're not good at making good assessments at one another, especially, generally speaking, in the world. We're not good at making assessments. Um, there are those today who are moral infidels. 
who are held up as icons in their respective fields. We have had even popular presidents whose personal morality was publicly acknowledged to be very low. So let's walk through these words. The vile person shall be no more called liberal. What's that mean? Well, the word vile here is the Hebrew word nabal or nabal, N-A-B-A-L. Remember Abigail in the Old Testament? Abigail was married to a fella. He was a mean, vile man. And his name was Nabal or Nabal. And that's what it means, vile. So the vile or the Nabal, the vile person, shall be no more called liberal. By the way, by the way, this, uh, this uh, Nabal, it means foolish or wicked and impious. Liberal here means generous. Okay? So the vile person will no longer be called liberal. Well, that tends to suggest that there was a time where vile people were called liberal or generous. Now remember what we're saying. The context here is in that day, there will be true assessments. But before that day, there will be false assessments. And in the previous day, like today, you might look to somebody and say, that vile man, well, he's sure generous. But not in that day. And that day there will be accurate assessments. Uh, it'll be a matter of calling sin, sin. You see. Um, churl, C-H-U-R-L, suggests being tight-fisted, miserly. Can you think of a, of a very famous character that's known as a tight-fisted man? Who is that? Scrooge. Yeah, Scrooge, sure. Scrooge. We could put Scrooge in here, and you'd understand what we're talking about here. Churl or Scrooge, nor the Scrooge <laughs> said to be bountiful, and that means giving freely or giving liberally. So here's the thought. The thought is in that day, in the day of the Lord, when Jesus rules and reigns, wicked men will not be labeled generous, nor will the miser be called a giver. There will be accurate assessments of people in that day. No longer will they hide their lack of character behind fancy titles. No longer will people say, wow, that person sure knows how to dress well, all the while living a very adulterous, wicked life. In that day, Isaiah 5 and verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Letter F. Men have lived wickedly, finding every way possible to express their wickedness. Verse 6, for the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Well, once again, we've got this vile person or foolish person. He will speak villainy or foolishly. So the fool will speak foolishly. His heart will create all forms of thoughts and plans of sinful behavior. He'll put on the outer front to convince people he's spiritual while living his life contrary to godliness. He'll spout doctrines that don't match up to the Word of God, leaving his listeners empty of any spiritual substance and still thirsty for a word from the Lord. Here we have the hypocrite. 
years ago, I learned of a man who, who in church, honestly, you would think this guy was a saint, a literal saint, because if there were ever a Bible drill, he would always win. He, he, would, he could quote scripture backwards and forwards. He knew all the hymns. He had this really nice Bible all marked up. He, he was a, he's a Sunday school teacher. He worked on a bus route for a while. Just, just the epitome. But he beat up his wife on a regular basis. I mean, literally beat her up. And was horrible at home. And the kids had nothing to do with him at home. He lived a wicked, wicked life outside of the church house. Well, that's what's being talked about here. Men have lived wickedly, finding every way possible to express their wickedness. Letter G, wicked men greedily take from those less fortunate. Verse 7, the instruments also of the churl are evil. He deviseth wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaketh right. So the instruments or methods of the churl or Scrooge or miser are wicked. He comes up with wicked means to take the possessions of the poor by lying, even when the needy have a just and right cause. Doesn't care. This, this miser, this, this greedy man will take from whoever he can, even if that person he's taking from has a really good reason not to take from, like they're going to be destitute. Doesn't matter. It's interesting what God says of the princes ruling in Judah at the time. Isaiah 123, thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Every one loveth gifts and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them, meaning they ignore the needs of those who are truly needy. Letter H. Liberal givers or generous givers will stand firmly in the day of the Lord. Verse 8. But the liberal deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. Again, the word liberal meaning generous. The uh, noble ruling class will in that day be generous to others and will be thoroughly grounded in the kingdom of the Lord. The ruling class, the rich, the elite, they will be incredibly generous to those in need at that time. Psalm 112, verse 9, He that dispersed, he hath given to the poor. His righteousness endureth forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. Number two, Judah's present danger. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, that's right. Judah's present danger, letter A. Judah's careless women. We're going to spend a few verses here of God condemning um, sinful women. And let me just preface this by saying, it's, when I first read this, I was kind of set back why God was picking on the women here. And he does. He, he comes down pretty heavy on, heavy on the woman. But the reason is, is because God holds men and women both equally accountable before him. He holds them both accountable. It's interesting because, um, just to look very quickly, but uh, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was it early, early on Sunday morning that was first to come to the tomb? 
Who was it? Mary. Yeah. Where are the guys? The guys are all sleeping in. <laughs> they're afraid to come. Literally, they're afraid to come and be seen there in the vicinity because there's still Roman guards there. Who showed up? The women. And what's interesting is that's in the Bible. It's included in the Bible. Now, that's one of the reasons we see that as evidence that the Bible's true. Because in the culture of that day, that was, that was a horrible slap in the face of the Jews. That the women were the ones to see the tomb empty. That the women were the ones to carry the message. That was a slap in the face to the Jews. And if this, if this were not God writing this, if this were Jewish men on their own writing it, they would not have put that down. Because culturally, it was too much an embarrassment to them. But so God holds women accountable spiritually like he holds men accountable, as we're going to go now. Number one, with a return to the present, warning is given to Judah's careless women. Verse 9, rise up, ye women that are at ease. Hear my voice, ye careless daughters. Give ear unto my speech. The focus abruptly diverts from the day of the Lord back to the impending judgment upon Judah in Isaiah's day. Remember I said, we're going to look forward to the, to the future. God's going to take a merciful break now and give them a, an opportunity to see what life could be like if they'll just submit to God in the future. But now we're coming back to judgment, to reality, what life is like in the here and now. As God is saying, this is where you are spiritually. Isaiah addresses his following comments to the careless women in Judah. They had continued to live their lives of pleasure and self-indulgence in spite of the warnings and signs of war threatening. It's interesting because the third chapter of Isaiah describes the women in Judah at that time. The daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks. Watch this. Stretched forth necks. Here's one way to describe that. Um, nose up in the air. <laughs> the idea of a haughtiness here. Um, and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. God is judging them because of their arrogance and their pride. Number two, soon Judah's women would be facing a major famine. Verse 10, many days and years shall be troubled, ye careless women, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. I find it funny, why is God telling the women that the harvest is going to be destroyed, that the vineyards are going to be destroyed? After all, men eat too. <laughs> yeah, but it's the women who work with it. The women are the ones that work with the food. The women are the ones that provide for that. They're the ones that keep the kitchen going, and it will hit them first. Either a long duration of trouble, or it could mean days above a year, or a little more than a year, suggesting the invasion of Sennacherib would occur in less than two years. As a warning to the careless women, Isaiah prophesied that their vineyards would not produce, and the harvest would fail. They're looking at a major famine. Number three, their women of society were warned to repent in sackcloth. Verse 11, tremble ye women that are at ease, be troubled ye careless ones, strip you and make bare and gird sackcloth upon your loins. For what purpose 
the Jews wear sackcloth? Remember? Mourning, yeah. Mourning. They're mourning, typically mourning or weeping over sin. When they go into times of either mourning or weeping or confession over sin, they're, they're wearing sackcloth. It is, it, is a, it is the opposite of being arrogant. It is humbling oneself there before God. So God is saying to these ladies, re re replace those, those expensive dresses and outfits and put on sackcloth and get right with me, is what he's saying. In Jeremiah 4 and verse 8, For this gird you with sackcloth, lament and howl, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. Number 4, the women would weep for the famine and lack of produce from their fields. Verse 12, they shall lament for their teats, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. There will be much grieving over all their loss after they're invaded. Mothers will be starving and have no milk for their infants. The fields that had produced so abundantly would be barren along with their vineyards. Letter B, Judah's vulnerable property. Number one, Judah would become a wilderness. The beautiful land of Judah. Remember the land flowing with milk and honey? <laughs> it will become a wilderness. Chapter 32, verse 13, Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city. When the Assyrians came, they came past uh, the north, through the north, they destroyed the, the Israel, the northern kingdom, and they came to Jerusalem and they encamped around Jerusalem. And they cut off the supply lines, keeping any kind of food from coming in to feed them, keeping water from coming in freely. Now they had underground water into the city, but, but keeping anything else from coming into the city. And so there was starvation going on there during this time. Um, all of the fields around the city were all destroyed by the Assyrians. The, the vineyards were destroyed. And so God is describing in those lush fields, they will be destroyed, and instead of nice crops, will be briars and thorns. It'll be a wilderness. Number two, large estates would become desolate. Verse 14, because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left. The forts and towers shall be for dens forever, a joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks. There are some incredibly expensive homes in Jerusalem at that time. The wealthy lived there. What it's saying is the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the famine because of the, uh, the Assyrians is going to cause even the wealthy to not be able to have food. They'll have no income. They'll have no way to support their staff. So these rich people that have butlers and maids and all this staff, they can't afford to keep them. So they're going to be laying all them off. They're going to have to go back to try to find their own way to live. They've got this massive home. They can't take care of it. So they end up moving out to try to find some easier way to live. Now these mansions are left abandoned. And the animals are taking over them. And, 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 the, and the, uh, the, uh, the, the weeds are all growing up into these mansions he's describing as these large estates become desolate. Number three, back to the day of the Lord. <laughs> All right. We need a breath of air, right? This judgment gets so bad. Once again, he says, okay, now look to the future. Once again. Letter A, the day of the Lord 
will be a pouring out of God's Spirit on His people. Verse 15, Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. So he's, he's taking the turn. He, said, he talks about how the fields will be dis, the, totally deserted and briars coming up and, and the mansions will be deserted and emptied and, and, uh, and falling apart. But there's coming a day once again, as we look to the future, where the fields will be lush once again, where the homes will be beautiful once again, as we look to the future, the day of the Lord will be a pouring out of God's Spirit. That which had become a wilderness because of God's judgment will once again become fruitful, growing so profusely it will look like a forest. Letter B, righteousness will prevail where wickedness had reigned. Verse 16, then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. Those places that had become void of God, this is God's people, they kicked God out and replaced God with their false gods. But in that day, Jesus will take over and rule and reign. The places that had been void of God, literally a spiritual wilderness, will become havens of truth and righteousness as Jesus rules and reigns. In the land that will be restored by the blessing of the Lord in that day, its owners and workers will be just and righteous in their dealings. Can you imagine? <laughs> Once again, they will make deals on a handshake. They won't need a battery of attorneys to make a transaction. They simply shake hands, and they once again will have trust. Isaiah 16, verse 21, Thy people also shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Letter C, righteous living yields peace. Verse 17, and the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Now, some of you younger folks, or some of you folks always lived in the city, will not understand this. But I grew up in a very small town. I say small town. Some people think it was the big city. On a good day, there were 1,100 people in my town. So you judge. But that's where I grew up. And it was a farming town. It was surrounded by pig farms. When I grew up, I don't remember having a lock on the front door. And if we did, it was never, ever locked. And the reason I know that is because neighbors were such. They'd come by. They would open the front door. Hello, anybody home? Sometimes you would find somebody, a neighbor, sitting on the couch in the living room. They just had that freedom to come and go, and that was just accepted. That's the kind of little Mayberry RFD that I grew up in. Now, we didn't lock our cars because there wasn't crime. I don't know if there was ever a car stolen all my growing up years. I never heard of it. Or a, or a house broke into. That's what we'll be describing in Jerusalem in the day of the Lord. It'll be a day of peace and quietness where neighbors actually enjoy each other and get along with each other and trust each other once again. It will be a beautiful time. Letter D, they will live in security and quietness because of righteousness. Verse 18, and my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places. 
There will be such an effect of righteousness in that day that people will live their lives peacefully cohabitating. Their homes will be secure with no fear of break-ins. Perfect love casteth out fear. Letter E, Jerusalem will be protected in that day. Verse 19, <laughs> I like it. When it shall hail, which is interesting to me. I'm going to read the verse. When it shall hail, coming down on the forest, and the city shall be low in a low place. Now, it seems like we're talking about during the time of the millennium, the Lord's rule and reign. So maybe this is symbolic, I don't know. But it tends to suggest there may be times of hail even in the millennium. But notice the protection here. The thought seems to suggest that when the storms come and rain down on hail on the forest, the city will be somehow protected, being lower than the forest. God promises to protect his city during the day of the Lord. Jerusalem will be protected in that day. And letter F, the day of the Lord will produce bountiful, lush harvests. Verse 20, blessed are ye that sow beside all waters, that send forth thither the feet of the ox and the ass. The initial interpretation here is that during the millennium, there will be much fertile land in which to sow their seed. There will be bountiful harvests, making use of their ox and ass and cultivating and caring for the fields. But it also can, has been used to encourage sowing of the seed of the gospel beside all waters or wherever we go. And that's tonight's message, lesson, chapters 31 and 32. Let's have a prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your love and your blessing, and thank you for these chapters. I thank you for the book of Isaiah. And Lord, this evening, once again, I thank you for your mercy. It's almost like, like you knew that your people, when they received this message, would be so overwhelmed with the message of judgment, they'd have to catch their breath. And so you lovingly and mercifully gave them a view to the future. I thank you for your mercy to them, and I thank you for your mercy to us. Lord, I do pray that you might help us to live our lives with the reality that you are our God and you're an all-powerful God and you want us to find our security and our source of strength and help in you. Bless, I pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.